0: To Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 13. And so if you've got one of these black paperback Bibles, that's on page 691. If you've got a gold one, it's 474. And please, I'd ask that you follow along as I read. Um, and this should be on the screen behind me as well. Beginning in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaking. Enter by the narrow gate. Lord, I still have the words in my mind from that song. Hallelujah, our God reigns. And so Jesus, we want to receive these words this morning not as uh, just words from a book, as um, a great speech from history, not as an interesting story. We wanna receive these words as the words of the king who even now is reigning in heaven, who loves us more than we could imagine, And who wants to address us soberly this morning. These are such sobering words, Lord. And so we want to receive them as you want to give them. We want to take them deeply into our hearts. And so please help us. Help us hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount all summer. And we've come to the last portion of it. Um, and this conclusion, the way Jesus concludes the sermon is, I think, one of the most frightening passages, if not the most frightening passage in the Bible. What does he say in verse 21? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus says there are people who call him Lord. Lord who consider themselves Christians, to whom, on the day of judgment, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. There are people who today think they are Christians going to heaven, and they're not. They never were. He never knew them, and I don't want any of us to be among them. I want us to look closely and attentively to these incredibly sobering, but also incredibly necessary words of Jesus. So, we're going to see in this passage the call to life, two dangers along the way to life, and finally the call to choose. And you have an outline in the back of your Bolton if you want to use it. First, the call to life. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now you may have noticed as we read through it that, that almost everything in this passage appears in twos, right? There are two gates, there are two ways, there are two trees, the two builders, two houses, everything's in twos. And the reason why Jesus is doing that, he's pressing on us this, this reality that there's a choice. There, there are only two ways that people end up, only two ways to go. It's either this or that. And in, in here in verses 13 and 14, he pictured these, these two ways as a journey. You, you go through a gate and you walk along a road. And he says that one of these roads is, is narrow and hard and ends in life. And one of, these road, one of these ways is wide and easy and ends in destruction. Eternal destruction. Now, this is not the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has brought up hell. If you've been following along this summer, if you've been with us, you may remember that in chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus was addressing this problem that we all have with anger. And this is what he says. He says, "'But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment.'" Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then just seven verses later, in verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And this idea of final judgment, it comes up in every picture in the passage that we read. There's a road that ends in destruction, There's a tree thrown into the fire. There's a person turned away from Jesus at the day of judgment. There's a house that collapses in a storm. You cannot take Jesus seriously unless you take this seriously. There is a way of living that ends in eternal destruction, and many people are on that way. That's what he's saying, isn't it? There's there's no other way to read that. And the reason Jesus was telling his disciples this and the crowd around them, the reason why he's saying that to us today is because he wants us to find life. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, choose life. Don't die, choose life. Enter this way. Now, when, when Kim and I first moved to Cayman, we lived in Georgetown. We lived on Walker's Road, just off Walker's Road, actually, on Comer Drive. I don't know if you know where that is. Almost nobody knows where that is. It's right next to the Rubis Station, and there's a house on the corner with a, a fence that goes right to the street, and you can't even see the street sign as you come by. So when we would give people instructions, we'd give them directions to our house, we'd say, now you have to, you have to really be watching. When you see the Rubis Station, you put on your blinker, and you turn immediately after the Rubis Station. Otherwise, you're going to miss it. Right. If you just get kind of in the zone, you're just following the car in front of you, you just blow right by and you won't find it. And, and Jesus is saying the way to life, it's a narrow path off a major highway. And so he, wants, he said, let, let me point this out to you. I don't want anybody to miss it. And how does he describe it? He says it's narrow and hard. In what way? Well, first, it's narrow and hard because there are people who will not go with you on that way. He says, Many travel the wide and easy way, and few find the narrow gate. Following Jesus means leaving the crowd. It means being misunderstood and possibly mistreated. Your relationship with family and friends may be strained as your path diverges from theirs. It means being in the minority, it means not fitting in. If you follow the crowd, you will miss the gate. You have to say, whether anyone else approves, whether anyone comes with me, I will listen to Jesus. And the way is hard because there are people who won't go with you. And it's hard and narrow because there are things you can't take with you. So when I was was growing up, I was a Boy Scout, and my dad and I went on a trip one summer where we went caving. And it wasn't a cave like the crystal caves where you kind of like just walk through and look up. It was like a hole in the ground. And you would put on this helmet with a light, and you would, you know, spend hours, like, crawling through dark, wet, narrow places. I hated it. That's, don't tell my dad. He, I did not like caving, okay? But there was a place in the cave, and they called it Crisco Crevice. And I don't know if you, I don't know, if you know, Crisco is an American brand of shortening. And the reason they called it Crisco Crevice was, the joke was, you, you would have to, you know, rub yourself with shortening just to squeeze through. Right? We, one, of our, one of the guys in our group actually got stuck for a while, which was a, a panicky moment underground in the dark. And, and Jesus is saying, he's saying that this gate is like that, right? In, in this, this crevice, you couldn't go through it with your backpack. You couldn't even have your canteen, right? It, just, it was only wide enough for your body to fit through. And he's saying, this gate is narrow. It's only wide enough for one at a time. And you're going to have to leave behind the things you were carrying on the wide and easy way. It's a picture of what Christianity speaks of as repentance, okay? Now, that word is charged, I know. And so I don't want you to assume that you know what I mean when I say that. You might think that what, he, what Jesus is talking about, he's saying, well, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to give up drinking, and you've got to move out from your girlfriend's house, and you've got to start going to church, and you have to start tithing, you have to become really religious, because that's what it takes. And, and it's, what Jesus is talking about is so much deeper than that, because... Now this, this takes a little remembering of what the Sermon on the Mount has been about, but what, what has Jesus, Jesus the whole time has been contrasting two kinds of lives, hasn't he? And he's not been contrasting good people and bad people, or religious people and irreligious people. He hasn't been saying, now there are two people, now this one's a murderer and this one's not, you should not be the murderer, or you know, here are two people, this one's an adulterer, this one's not, don't be the adulterer, or here are two people, this one prays, this one doesn't, you should pray. That's not what he's been contrasting, is it? He's been saying, here are two people, neither of them murdered anybody, but this one on the inside is eaten up with anger, and this one loves from the heart. Here are two kinds of people, neither one of them have committed adultery, but this one is a slave to lust in his heart. And this one is pure all the way down. Or here are two people who pray. And this one prays just to impress people and to get attention. And this one prays just to please his father and draw near to him. He's saying the, the two ways he's saying are not not bad people and good people. It's it's good people from the outside who are totally different on the inside and doing it for all the wrong reasons and people that are genuinely being transformed from the heart. It's religious people who are only, what they're doing is only skin deep and genuinely righteous people who are loving God, obeying him, being changed from the heart. That's the two ways. So repentance, it isn't deciding to just stop some bad behaviors and starting some good habits. It's being renovated from the bottom to the top. It's not just putting a, a layer of paint over things. It's having the whole structure of your life demolished and rebuilt from the ground up. Now, let me show you what he means from just the, ver- the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this verse is so important for understanding the sermon that we spent, we spent a whole week on it when we began the sermon series. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so whose is the kingdom of heaven? Is it the people who do all the right things, the people who pray and give and fast and who do more than everyone else? No. He says it's the poor in spirit. It's those who see that, that spiritually they're just beggars before God, that God is righteous and holy, that his standard is perfection, and that we fall entirely short of what God, God requires. They don't, they don't just see the bad things they do. They see that the good things they do, they do for the wrong reasons, they do them to get respect and admiration. They do, them, they do good things for people so that people will do good things back to them. They do it to try to put God in their debt so he'll bless them. Like if I go to church, maybe something good will happen for me this week. They, they do it for the good feeling it gives. They do it to try to offset guilt from their past. Well, I, you know, I did this and now I'm just going to make it up to God and then by the end the scales will be even. No, the poor in spirit see that they have no righteousness of their own that could gain God's favor or approval. And the only way they could enter his kingdom is by a gift. They, they know it can't come from me. I don't have it in me. I can't be what I have to be. It's gonna have to come from him. And so they don't come to God with a resume. They come as a beggar. They come with open hands. They're poor in spirit. They, they need heaven to be a handout. They need it to come from him. The only way into the kingdom is by grace. It doesn't come to those who think they deserve it. It comes to those who say, I have no righteousness of my own. I have nothing to offer God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for my forgiveness and offers me his righteousness. And through trusting in him, though I'm a sinner, I am also called righteous and I can pass through the gates of heaven. That's how it comes. Only by grace. And one of the signs, so, so that comes just through trusting in Jesus, right? We don't do anything for God. We don't make it up to him. We trust that Jesus died for us, that gives us his righteousness. We pass through. So we're saved by grace through faith. Okay, are you tracking with me? So we're saved by grace through faith, not by what we do, but one of the signs of genuine faith in Scripture is repentance. It's a change of life. In order to turn to Jesus, you have to turn from Whatever it was you were living for before, whatever was at the core of your life, whatever you looked to for, for meaning and purpose and happiness and security, your true God. And that might have been your career, it might be your children, it might be financial security, it might be a romantic relationship, it might be the admiration of people. It's whatever you in your life looked to and said, as long as I have that, I'm something. As long as I have that, I'm okay. And if I lose that, I don't even want to live right, whatever it was that gave your life purpose, when you, when you trust in Jesus, you turn away from finding all your hope in that, okay? There's, there's a parable, Jesus tells a famous parable about a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And he says that when he found that treasure, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy the field. That's repentance. It's not cleaning yourself up so God will accept you. It's not meeting his standard. It's Abandoning all your earthly treasures because you found a treasure that's worth more to you than anything in the world. The treasure of life in Jesus. When, when Jesus calls a disciple, he doesn't say, I love you and I just want to make your life easier. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. He calls us to life. And in order to find the life he wants to give us, we have to turn from the old life we were living. We have to follow him. We're saved, if we're saved, by grace alone, through faith alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation, but saving faith is never alone. It shows itself in repentance. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 2. He says, "...for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing." It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by your works, but what does he say? You're saved for works. For good works. God has prepared these works for you to walk in them. You're saved for a new kind of life. So have you have you left the main road and gone through the narrow gate. Have you ever said to God, I know that on my own I am on the road to destruction? Without, without Jesus, I am lost. I have nothing to offer you, but on the basis of the life and death of your son Jesus, will you forgive me and make me new? If you do that, God will send his spirit into your life to renovate your heart and change you from the inside out. You will become a new creation on the road to life. Now, you may be thinking, he said there are four points, and that one was like an hour. So just, just rest assured, that was the longest point, because that was the one where I had to be really, really clear. We're not saved by what we do, but the faith that saves changes how we live, okay? So that's the way. The call to life is a call to repent and believe in Jesus, and Jesus says there are two dangers to watch for on the way. And the first danger is deceptive teachers. So look at verse 15. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus says that the way to life is made more difficult because along the way you will encounter people who just, they they don't teach the truth. They they look like Christians. They're wearing sheep's clothing. They will act like Christians. They will talk like Christians. They might be pastors. They might be best-selling authors. But their message will not be true. And if you listen to them, you may be led off the narrow way. They might add to grace and tell you there's something more than Jesus that you need in order to have God's love and favor. Or they might subtract from repentance and say, well, grace means that that you can have Jesus and forgiveness and you just keep on living the way that you want to, right? It's just, it's a free gift, so don't change. How will we recognize false prophets? Well, one way is by always comparing whatever you're taught, including by me, to this book, examine what this book says. This is your authority. But Jesus also says, eventually you'll tell them by their fruits. Their fruits will give them away. So an apple tree bears apples, right? Uh, uh, A mango tree bears mangoes. A grapevine bears grapes. If you're not sure if the tree in your yard is a guava tree, how do you tell? You could ask somebody or you just wait. Because if it's a guava tree, it will bear guavas. The fruit will show what kind of tree it is. Now, people can pretend for a time to be something they're not. And so Jesus gives this, this picture of the, the, like the, the thistles and the, the thorn bushes. And he says, grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes. So there was, there was a thorn, a buckthorn in Palestine, and on it, it bore little black berries that at a distance could look like small grapes. And there's a thistle that has flowers that at a distance could be mistaken for a fig. But he's saying, sooner or later, you're going to know the truth. If you get close enough and you wait long enough, you're going to see, that's not grapes. That's not figs. This is not what I thought it was. The same is true of teachers. Now, people can pretend for a while to be something they're not. But if you watch their life long enough, you're going to see the fruit. They're going, you're going to see them get caught off guard by something. Their children are going to do something that they don't expect, and they're either going to respond patiently or they're not. Right? They're they're going to rejoice and trust God in suffering, or they won't. When there's conflict in the church, they will ask for forgiveness and pursue reconciliation, or they won't. You'll know them by their fruits. And this is part of why it's so important that you don't make your primary teacher somebody you only know through books or podcasts or the Internet. Okay, you can, It's great to get good teaching in all those ways, but there's a danger in trusting too much in anyone whose life you don't get to see. That's one danger along the way to life. And the second is self-deception. So let's look at verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The people Jesus is describing here are people who consider themselves Christians. They call Jesus Lord. They do things in his name, and they weren't just casual churchgoers. They were fervent. They say, Lord, Lord, right? They they even performed miracles. They prophesied. They had real spiritual power. They might have been Sunday school teachers. They might have been small group leaders. They might have gone on mission trips. They might have been pastors, These were people, other people looked at and said, now that's what a Christian should be. I want to be like that. But on the day of judgment, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. You went to church and you read your Bible and you did mighty works in my name and you never entered into a relationship with me. You never left the main road. You never entered the narrow gate. These people were busy with church stuff. They did all kinds of things for God, but they never became the people the Sermon on the Mount talks about, the people who receive the kingdom as beggars, the people, who, the people who repent and turn and become righteous from the heart. He never knew them. You, every one of us, me, I'm talking to myself, every one of us is going to stand before God one day for judgment. Does he know you? Do you know him? How do you know that you know? Don't put your confidence in having grown up in church, or having prayed a prayer to receive Christ. Don't put your trust in having a spiritual relationship at camp or on a mission trip. Don't think that because someone asked you to be a leader that that just automatically makes you in. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you guys see that every stage in this conclusion, he's pushing us to examine ourselves to see whether we're on the road to life or not? And he's not doing that because he wants to make us anxious or afraid. He's doing it because he wants us to look to him. And that leads us, finally, to the last point, the call to choose. Let's look at this last and probably most famous picture, which begins in verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So just as there were two gates, two ways, two trees, there are two houses. And these houses from the outside probably look identical. Okay, Jesus finds no fault with the structure of the house. They they look like nice places to live. But when the storms came, one didn't fall, and one fell greatly. Why? Because one had a wise builder, and one had a foolish builder. Now, every builder knows that the foundation is the essence of the house, right? It's the most important part. Everything takes its shape and its strength from the foundation. Everything depends on it, and yet one builder decided, well, a good foundation is best, but I think a sand foundation will do. And when the storm came, as it was sure to do, The whole thing was destroyed. And Jesus says, that's a picture of everyone who hears my words and doesn't do them. Of those who say, I hear what you're saying about giving away my money in order to please God and serve the poor, but I'm just not sure I can give up this lifestyle. Or who say, I hear what you're saying about loving my enemies and praying for those who wrong me, but that just can't apply to my situation. Or, I hear what you're saying about not divorcing, but I can't believe that God wants me to be unhappy. Or, I hear what you're saying about final judgment, but I just can't believe that a good God would condemn me. Jesus is saying if you hear my words and you don't act on them, you're heading for catastrophe. Why? Because if you're not doing Jesus' words, if you aren't what he calls, uh, up in verse 21, doing the will of my Father, if you're not doing what he says, then you shouldn't have any confidence that you've entered the narrow gate. You haven't, you haven't, you're not, life isn't showing that you've been saved by grace through faith. It's showing that he might not know you. How can we know that we know Jesus and are known by him? It's not by looking at what everyone else is doing and saying, well, I'm following the crowd, right? I'm sure someone would tell me if I should be doing something different because if you're following the crowd, that's the wide and easy way, isn't it? It's not by saying, well, I go to church and I give to the poor and I volunteer. That's more than most people do. That was true of the people that Jesus turned away. How can we know that we're the good builder whose home survives the storm? I'm going to ask you two questions, and I want you just to answer them in your heart. First, have you put all your hope for forgiveness and eternal life in the grace of Jesus Christ? In other words, Have you seen that you have no righteousness of your own, but Jesus died so you can be forgiven, and you know that when you trust in him, you are given his righteousness and brought into relationship with God? Are you looking to Jesus alone for salvation? And the second question is, does your life show the reality of your faith? Now, I know that you are not obeying perfectly. Neither am I, right? We're saved through faith, not works. But is your faith bearing fruit? Does your life show a growing love for God and his people? Do you want to be more like Jesus? When you hear Jesus speak, do you think, that sounds really hard, but I love you and I want to go the way you're calling me to go. If your faith is fully in Jesus and your faith is bearing fruit, even if it's not perfect, then this, this section of the sermon, it should not worry you. Jesus does not want to make genuine Christians anxious about where they're going. But there may be people here this morning who consider themselves Christians, but you know that you're not doing Jesus' words. You know that you're not living the way God wants you to live, and you need to take him seriously. Now that doesn't mean, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that your faith isn't real. You might be kind of wandering for a while and God's going to bring you back, but the reality of your faith will be seen in how you respond to him this morning. Will you walk away from what's not pleasing to him in order to follow him on the narrow way to life? Whatever your situation this morning, whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian and you're just considering, is Jesus worthy of my trust? Or you consider yourself a Christian but you know you need to make a change? Or whether you're a growing Christian who nevertheless is just experiencing hardship on the road to life, we all have the same need this morning. We need to see Jesus freshly. Now though we need to examine ourselves to make sure our faith is changing our lives, our ultimate assurance of God's love and acceptance can never come from ourselves. Right? Our life will never be perfect. We always are going to fall short. Our assurance ultimately comes from this good news that though Jesus perfectly followed the narrow way, it ended for him in destruction on the cross so that your road could end in life. That though Jesus bore only good fruit, He was thrown into the fire so you could be plucked out of it. That though Jesus always did the will of his Father in heaven, the door of heaven was shut to him so it could be opened to us. That though Jesus perfectly built his house on the rock, his life was destroyed in the storm of God's judgment so we could pass safely through. If you see what he did for you on the cross, if you receive that gift, Jesus will become your greatest treasure and then there will be nothing you won't give up for him and nowhere you won't follow him. If you trust in him, he will receive you and you will be able to face judgment with confidence because you know that the one who will judge you is the one who died for you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Can you say that? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our Lord, um, your words to us are so sobering, and they're hard words. They're hard words, Lord, but we know that you're saying them because of love. You want us to find the narrow gate. You want us to find life. And you gave your own life so we could, Jesus. You have done everything necessary to bring us to God. And we trust you and we ask that you would forgive us and that you would make us new and that you would help us to follow the road that leads to life, the road we walk with you Lord, I pray that um, I do not want anyone to leave anxious this morning. So help us look to Jesus and find all of our assurance in him and resolve to trust and follow him all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.